We've been talking about the book of Esther. And we have been studying this book, and I've been emphasizing over and over, if you're visiting with us, the fact that we are dealing with the invisible hand of God. And our hero and our heroine in this story have God's favor on them. Favor because they have a right relationship with God. Favor because they do the right things. And we watch this book play out because we believe, as the story unfolds, that God's hand is very much giving his favor to Esther, to Mordecai, and also to the people of Israel. When we talk about the invisible hand of God, we are talking about that which cannot be seen. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he could be seen. He interjected into life with humanity. Even the book of 1 John talks about how he was touched, he was felt, he was heard. <clears throat> but our day-to-day -day life isn't dealing with Jesus in this way. Our day-to-day -day life isn't dealing with a God that can be seen. We deal with a God who is unseen, but yet we very much know that he's dealing with guardian angels with us, Psalm 91, that for the church he sends in angels unawares. And I've wanted, as we've gone through this study, to heighten your awareness to this reality of the spiritual world. Has it done that? I hope it has. I think one of the things that I want to emphasize even this morning is this concept that we all need to understand that we don't live just in a physical world, that there's a spiritual world that is all around us. And it is very, very important that you grasp that. It's very, very important that you think about it. And one of the best and one of the most profound ways to illustrate this is with a passage of scripture in 2 Kings chapter 6. And that is the passage where Elisha, the prophet of God, is helping Israel because the king of Aram is against the Jews. He's out there to basically attack Israel and destroy the Jews, but every one of his plans is thwarted. <coughs> Excuse me, if you're in 2 Kings chapter 6, you see if you would go back and later study this entire passage, he's frustrated and he basically finds out that the reason his secret plans are being found out is because God has this secret spiritual world that's tapping into the prophet and Elisha is telling Israel, hey, this is what the king is doing. So when you come to 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Aram has had enough and he basically sends an army to surround the, to the surround where Elisha is. Now, this, I think, is as close as you can get to a real photo. <laughs> it's a cartoon or whatever. Now, the idea is, if, see right here, I think this would be the prophet and his servant. And what you have here is what is depicting, look, comedically, the idea they woke up and they looked around, and the servant is absolutely freaking out. You would too. And a giant army is all around you. You go back, you read 2 Kings chapter 6, and it says in verse 15, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were circling the city. And his servant said to him, this is hopeless, my master. What are we to do? And he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And you, at this point, would say, are you nuts? What are you talking about? We're circled by an army. Then Elisha, verse 17, prayed and said, Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and all around Elisha. And I don't know how well it comes up on the screen. But if you can look at that, my thought is, listen, do you think that this is just for that occasion? You're not thinking right if you think that. 
The Bible tells us that we face a spiritual battle, that there's a hierarchy of demonic forces, but that if we appeal to the um, tools that God have, has given us to fight these spiritual battles, and we're gonna get into this passage later in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God, we too can have this force, these battles with us. We know that there are charismatic churches that abuse this. I'm not here to abuse it. So much of what the battle armor is is dealing with your righteousness, you're putting on truth, you're using your faith. Not this, hey, I'm slaying people in the spirit, the foolishness that you watch on charismatic TV. I don't want us to think just because, though, someone like a Benny Hinn takes in his hand as if he's got the ball of the Holy Spirit and he throws the ball out and everyone in his church falls over, that because that is so ridiculous that we ourselves do not engage in spiritual warfare. You have to understand we are in a spiritual battle. I love this. I really love this in this, you know, you might say cartoonish reenactment, but the reality of it is we are in a spiritual war, and we are in a spiritual world. And the more you think that you're in a neutral, non-aggressive world, you are fooling yourself. And I've tried to show you throughout the study that Satan is constantly coming at it, constantly working to tempt you, to work at things to make you either think that there is no God or think that the Bible is a lie or think that you can't trust the word of God, whatever well as to try to put you in a place where you'll sin. So as we come to the book of Esther, we see this book that never mentions God one time, but yet we know that God is the one who is the active agent, making sure that Israel doesn't get wiped out. <coughs> if you haven't been with us, the book of Esther is all about how a man named Haman has convinced a king, the king of Persia, who had this incredible territory to kill all the Jews in the world. There were about 10 to 15 million Jews at that time in a population of over 100 million people. And when we came to chapter seven of the book of Esther, Haman's plan was thwarted, he was killed. And at that point, I thought to myself, wow, the story's over. And I think a lot of people think the story's over, but it's not, and that's why I've been emphasizing this, and now the rest of the story. For those of you who didn't grow up in the 60s and 70s like me, as well as even some of the 80s, this man I'm picturing up here is a man named Paul Harvey. He was a radio broadcaster who, had a, um, who did news, but also had a special four-minute uh, segment, up to four minutes, called The Rest of the Story. And I've been using some of his accounts to emphasize that when we came to Esther chapter seven, we're not done. The story needs to be played out. And so I have another one of his accounts and this one ties into somebody winning a battle behind the scenes. And I thought you would really like this. And my whole purpose of telling this story is that I just want to emphasize how sometimes you think you know the story, but there's a rest of the story. And I hope you find this one very interesting. This one kind of ties into President's Day because President's Day is next Monday. Not tomorrow, but next Monday. You all ready for that? And then the idea is that we honor, primarily we used to honor Lincoln and Washington. And um, this story is about Abraham Lincoln. And it's called The Rest of the Story. And then Paul Harvey says, during the Civil War, when the North had the most to lose, a crucial decision was made to attack the Deep South by way of the Tennessee Valley. And the plan worked. And for that winning strategy, the history books credit credit a man named Ben Wade. And I had never heard of Ben Wade, but he was chairman and committee of the conduct of the war. But the credit, Paul Harvey goes on to say, is misplaced. Now, on another front, the capture of Vicksburg seemed impossible, objective for the Union Army, because Vicksburg was a river port and an attack from, the, on an attack from water was seriously considered. But in the end, Vicksburg fell by a land attack, and Grant was great, Grant, who becomes president, was credited with the strategy. But again, somebody else deserved the credit. In fact, a great many successful Civil War strategies were conceived by an unsung strategist, a civilian advisor whom President Lincoln kept in the closet, a Southerner. And see, I found this fascinating because as I have always enjoyed understanding how the Civil War played out and all of these major battles played out, 
I never knew that there was one person that was critical to winning the war for the North. Paul Harvey has a long section. I'm going to go into all the detail, but he continues at the end, and he says, the invaluable invaluable assistance to the cause for the Union received none of the much credit. The person responsible got zero credit while the war was on. And when it was over, a bill was introduced in Congress that would award compensation for Lincoln's tactician. The bill was defeated. So the brilliant advisor hailed by the Secretary of War, Stanton, which I always found fascinating, always wondering where he really stood in history, Secretary of War, Stanton, said, this person, this unsung hero, did the great work that made the others famous. This person was left with little applause and no money, but to spend the last years of this person's life paralyzed and supported by a relative. So what, was, so what was it that Congress was reluctant to recognize? Was it that the technically unqualified civilian had outmaneuvered the military? Or was it that a Southerner had helped the North? Or was it this, that the person who did all of this was a woman? And this is interesting. Her name is Anna Ella Carroll. She was in all, an advisor in all of those major battles. It's absolutely fascinating. And there is some debate about how much of a role she actually played. But as I quoted Stanton and I quoted some other people, she was a key player. And for those of you who have seen this painting, this is a famous painting of Lincoln. And does anyone know what he's signing? He's signing the Emancipation Proclamation. All right, and this is a really famous painting, but what you may not have ever caught in this painting, the rest of the story, this empty chair, this empty chair was for Anna Ella Carroll. And they didn't want to put her in it because of the bias towards this woman who's behind the scenes, but some other people have painted it and they put it, they've repainted this and put her in it. Now, why am I telling you this story? <coughs> because it's the rest of the story. Now, when you think of the Civil War, I hope you think of Anna Ella Carroll. And the idea is that behind the scenes, sometimes things happen and you don't always know why they happen. And what we're going to see today as we watch the events play out in Esther chapter 9, if you'll turn it in your Bibles there now, we're going to see how as we come to chapter 9 and the story of Israel's defense comes to herself uh, to, 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 to defend herself. So the background, if you haven't been with us, is that this evil man, Haman, who's like an Adolf Hitler, is killed in chapter seven. But because the Persians have this ridiculous law that once the king makes an edict, and he had made an edict that all the Jews could be killed, I believe it was on um, um, March 6th, 473 BC, that... It couldn't be reversed. But the plan came, was derived in chapter 8 that the Jews could fight back. Wow. Let's see how it plays out. So we come to chapter 9, and it says this. Now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, okay? And this is for us, just quoting, this is March 6, 473 B.C. On the 13th day, when the king's command and the edict was about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery of those who hated them. Now, this is sort of like a big summary. Basically, when everything was supposed to play out, on March 6th, all the Jews were supposed to be killed. And as I said it last week, every Jewish person you know, you wouldn't know today if this would have been executed. This was a plan that was satanic. If you're unaware, why are, are, why are they doing this? Because why are they wanting to kill the Jews? You always have to know because the Jewish people are the people that God picked to bring salvation to the whole world. Jesus is a Jew and Jesus is one that's going to rule and reign over the entire earth. Satan knows that God has picked this plan. And I don't know if I asked you last week to go back to look at Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 is a great reminder that Israel was this ugly baby, abhorrent baby. 
And the reality of it is there's nothing worthy of Israel to be chosen to be a nation. But God picks them as a nation, and because he picks them as a nation, now they are his chosen people. And we want to align ourselves with them. But the big picture here in chapter 9, verse 1, is the fact that he's telling us these enemies were coming at Adam, but they're going to win. The Jews are going to have the mastery over them. Verse 2, the Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Now, the key is they are not the aggressors. They are putting up self-defense. So, and no one could stand before them. For the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. The idea, like you throw that line in there, well, my goodness, um, the dread of all had fallen on them. Now, I think in one sense it made the enemies a little bit scared, so some don't fight, and so I think it minimized the fight. I don't know how else it would have actually played out. I was thinking of uh, uh, when I was younger, there was a fighter whose name was Mike Tyson. And, you know, he was a, the heavyweight champion of the world. And when Mike Tyson literally got in the ring, people were terrified. The, the opposing fighter would literally be shaking. And often Tyson would win within 30 seconds, 40 seconds, because the opponent had just given up the will to fight. Well, I wonder if some of that is at the end of verse 2 there, when the, the idea of the dread... <laughs> the fear. And remember, for those of you who were last week, the idea, instead of saying the fear of God, he, they say the dread of the Jews. Because remember, God's not being mentioned in this book. Verse 3 is one that I think, a verse that you should star. It's after all these years of teaching the book of Esther, it is one that we really need to focus on because of what it reveals. Look at verse 3. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business, key verb, assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. He's the second guy in command. And they're all realizing, we want to have his favor. We want to be with him. We don't want to cross him. And we're going to help the Jews. So when we look at the fact that the Jews are going to end up winning this battle, they're going to kill 75,000 people, the reality of it is is they didn't do it alone. They got the army, they got the peoples, everyone came on their side, which is phenomenal when you realize 11 months earlier when this decree originally went out, when it originally went out, that it, it looked like they were going to be totally wiped out. They were hopeless and helpless people. Now, you know, you turn a page, you go from chapter 8 to chapter 9. I don't know how much you think about it, but by the time you go from chapter 8 to chapter 9, seven months have gone by. And it's allowed the people to hear that Mordecai's plan, hey, fight, the Jews are going to fight back. And people made the decision, hey, we're going to help the Jews fight back. So verse 4, indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. And I think, how fascinating. Remember, the Jews are people that are just exiles. They are prisoners of war. They're living in Persia. But God is trying to show the Jews and show the world, I can continue to put my man in my place where I need him to be. Whether it was Joseph with Egypt or Daniel with Babylon, God has allowed always his strategic people to be in place. So verse 5 then the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they, did, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now you say, well, why in the world would they, you know, why wouldn't they just be nice? Well, this is a cruel world. And, 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 and the reality of it is, is we have to realize that these people were out to kill the Jews. And so this is like, this is self-defense. And, and so the Jews are winning and God blessed. And verse 6 in the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So this is specific. Remember, citadel is in modern-day Iran, um, this area of Susa. We found the ruins, and you know there was a big city, and there were um, a lot of people in that city. I can't remember the exact number. But you go through this list, and here the 10 sons of Haman are listed. Again, I believe to bring about the historical accuracy that when people heard about the story of Esther... 
they would know, oh, I know these people. I found out <coughs> there's an extra biblical story on this first name, if I can read it rightly. Um, yeah, Parish and Dastha, then you have Delphon, then Aspatha, Paratha, Adelia, Eridatha, um, Parmastha, Erisai, Eridai, and Valsatha. Okay, did my best. But the interesting thing is, is the, these, these are the ten, ten sons of Haman, Haman being our arch enemy, and they were, I believe, aggressively coming at the Jews because remember in chapter 8, all their wealth had been given from the house of Haman to Mordecai and Esther. So they're thinking, what do we got to lose? We're going to combat it, and we're going to fight, and we're going to fight hard. So verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the sons of Hamatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. And this is so, I believe, over and over and over that the reason that the Jews are fighting is to defend themselves. They're not doing it to to get the wealth. That's why Haman had this originally. Remember, he was going to get all the wealth from the Jews and give it to the king. Who knows how much he was going to keep for himself. But the idea here is that the Jews are going to have clean hands. There's going to be no accusations against them. So verse 11, on that day, the number of those who were killed at the city of Susa was reported to the king. Verse 12, then the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at, at the citadel in Susa. When, what then have, have they done um, to, in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Which I believe, as we've taught, studied the king's heart is being moved by God because the reality of it is is the king doesn't have to ask this question. He doesn't have to ask Esther, do you need any more help? That's what he's saying. Verse 13, then Esther said, if it pleases the king tomorrow, um, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today and let Haman's sons be hanged on the gallows. I believe these sons are being put on the gallows. They're already dead. And this is sort of a, a, a sign. Now, this is where, you know, you get into this whole concept. This is graphic. This is vile. This is vicious. This is, I mean, this is horrific. But you got to understand, we are, li this is, this is, to me, the spiritual world being played out because we are dealing with life and death issues here. We are dealing with evil who hates you. And, and evil is something that we have to grasp. Grant read from Psalm 6, the Lord's Prayer. How often do you think about this? When it says what? Do not lead me in temptation, but what? Deliver me from evil. You have to grasp that we are in a world in which there's a force of evil. Evil is out there. Evil sexually molests people. Evil is out there and steals. Evil lies. Evil is out there, and it's, it's, it's more than sin. And, and you have to understand that you need to be aware that evil is all around us because we live in an evil world. We live in a world in which evil controls the media. It's the prince of the power of the air. You know, people lately have been throwing out this expression, fake news. We all have heard it, right? Listen, people, we've been living with fake news for <laughs> hundreds of years. It's not something that just all of a sudden came up new. We're going to find out when we come, I think if we're in heaven and God lets us play out how history really went out, I think we're going to be blown away. We're going to find out so much of what we thought was truth in the news was not. And, and, and so what I want you to understand is evil is vile and it brings about murder. It brings about destruction. It brings about ruining people's lives it ruins marriages it ruins parent 
children relationships. It ruins businesses. We are privileged in America to not have to deal with the fact that our entire society is crumbling because of war. We look and we read a newspaper. I don't know how many of you read the newspaper this morning. I get up and I read it, and the headline on one side of the paper is about the 28,000 killed in Gaza over the, the past month or so. Then I come to page eight or something, and it's the exact same headline. And it's trying to emphasize that you know, all these people are being killed under this horrific war act. But it never has, an art, another, never has an explanation that so many of the people are being kept in Gaza, that as the Jews go out and attack Gaza, and they're telling people, leave, because we know that the Hamas has put their, their secret force headquarters underneath a hospital or underneath a school or something like that. We've got to stop them. And Gaza is, um, the people in Gaza are, are being held by gunpoint, so they can't get out of Gaza. We, that's evil. And I just you think, well, why isn't that happening here? By God's grace, it's not happening here. By God's grace, we're not in the Ukraine. And we just had a missionary come back, and I talked to him, Eric Mock, and you know, he could hear bombs in the distance. Thank God we're not living like that all the time. But you and I need to have this awareness that evil is all around us. So anyway, I think when we come to verse 14, Esther knows that they're not done. The, the people who hate them, I think she's got a report. I don't think she's being vindictive. So when we come to verse 14, the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's 10 sons were hanged. And verse 15, and the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month after and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. So why is the second day brought up? I think Esther knew about what they wanted to do, that they were relentless, they were coming back. (coughs) Remember, Satan has an incredible hatred of the Jews, and it's irrational, and it impacts people. So that today, people look at, doesn't matter that even when, in Gaza that the Jews were defending themselves. we just got to kill the Jews. we got to kill the Jews. And this is what, to me, is one of the greatest passages to show that sin is irrational, that sin doesn't make sense. The, these people who are attacking the Jews, their hatred is so great, they know, verse 3, Remember, I said, look at verse 3, that the satraps and the people in the government are helping the Jews. And they know that they're out there helping the Jews. But it doesn't matter because we just want to kill the Jews. We want to destroy the Jews. And if it costs us our life, even though we know that we're, we're now the minority, we're now the ones who are outnumbered, we're still going to attack. And that's what they did. So verse 16 Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend and defend their lives and rid themselves of the enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Again, the Jews are not doing this to get rich. Verse 17, this was done on the 13th day, March 6th of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. So while all the other Jews around the land of Persia are resting within from Ethiopia to India, those in the capital city know that this isn't done. So verse 18, but the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing, because that becomes the holiday we know as Purim. So verse 19, therefore the Jews in the, of the rural areas who lived in the rural towns made the 14th day of the month after a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. So like you step back and what all this is is like they won the war, they beat them, they killed 75,000 plus the five and three, but this becomes this major holiday. It's one of the major holidays for the Jews that was never prescribed in scripture but one that the Jews continually give credit to God. Even today they do. Now, from verse 20 on, it's sort of like a a summary, and I just want to read through this. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. 
obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same, uh, of the same month annually. Because on these days, the Jews rid of themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned to them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make these days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Verse 23, thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. Now, remember, this has to be incredible for the Jews. They were the exiles. They are people who are weak. They have no power. They should not be in this but all position, but God works it out that Mordecai becomes the second most powerful man in the kingdom underneath the king, and the queen is in her position too. So verse 24 for Haman, the son of Habatha, the Agite, the adversary of the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had, had cast pur, that is the lot, to, dis, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, his command by letter that his, the wicked scheme which he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur, and because of the instructions in the letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them. The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to the regulation and according to the appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from amongst the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Then it gets reiterated. Then Queen Esther, verse 29, daughter of Abihail, that's her father, first time I think he's mentioned in the book, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of, of the kingdom of Asherah's namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed time, just as, so Morde just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants and for instructions that their times of fasting and their lamentations, the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. I can't tell you right off the top of my head, five, six times Purim is mentioned. Look, why is that so significant? Why is Purim such a, like a, a thing of irony? If you're using in literature, the idea of, of, of something that is going to pull you in and you're going to grasp it, that you, it's, it's, it's seen but not seen. Purim is just the ingenious as, um, end of this book in the sense that this holiday gets established. Because if you weren't with us, Pur means the lot. And it was like these seven or eight dice kind of objects they weren't actually like dice how we have them today but they were like stones and they had markings on them and they would throw these and because they would throw these out they would they would be appealing to the unseen forces and the unseen forces are what Haman appealed to when he threw the lot and he throws those out there what random chance and he comes up with the idea that when he threw those 11 months after this date that's the perfect time to kill all these Jews, so that we could get everything figured out, we could get everything assembled, and we could get everything ready to go. But little did he know that God needed that time, <coughs> that time so that he could have all the tables turned. And that before you know it, Haman, you're the one that's gonna be killed, you're the one that's gonna suffer, and your sons are gonna die, you're gonna lose everything. Now for the, you and I who get this, you and I who see this, the celebration of per, per um, is for us to understand that God is always working behind the scenes. And if you live your life not tied into the spiritual world, you're not reading your scriptures, you're not praying, you're not focused, I'm telling you the unseen world is eating you up. You will be eaten up because we live in a world in which God is at work, this unseen spiritual forces are at work, and he has told us how to interact with them. So what are the principles we learn from this? First and foremost, you have your sermon notes. We always have to remember the book of Esther is about Israel. 
God blesses Israel's self-protection. Remember to honor her. Remember to honor the nation of Israel. How do you do it? You pray for Israel today. You recognize with your attitude. Listen, like I told you, the front page of our newspaper and the eighth page of our newspaper this morning, it slants the news. It presents things in such a way that Israel is looked at as negative. Israel's the one killing women and children. Israel's the one that's throwing all these bombs on these people. Israel, Israel, Israel's the negative one. But you and I have to know. You and I have to be able to tell people, no, here's the truth. My goodness, listen, I was in Israel. And I was, when I was over there, and we were in this one neighborhood, and, and all the Jews and Arabs were playing together. And the, the Jewish people told us, we get along with the Arabs wonderfully until the TV cameras come. And when the TV cameras come, the little children that our children are all playing together pick up stones and start throwing them at us. So that now the Jewish children throw stones back or whatever, and it makes it look like we're, we have animosity. It's a, it's a game for them. It, it's, there's this incredible deceptiveness and this hatred that's out there for the Jews. But it, all, I, I've got to remember, it's not just because they don't like Jewish people. It's because they don't like God. Because they know, well, we know, the spiritual world knows that God has set a plan that he told a man named Abraham in Genesis 12 that the entire world would be blessed through you. Salvation comes through the Jewish people. And if the Jewish people are destroyed, God's plan for setting up a kingdom through them would also be destroyed. Hence, Satan has to kill the Jews. Hence why we need to pray for them. Now, we know they're not saved. We know they're not perfect people. We're hoping that God will bring salvation to them. Sadly, and I say sadly from the perspective, we know the plan of the book of Revelation. We know that, sadly, that Israel is going to reject Messiah until the very last day. And then when they're totally hopeless, and I think it's, it's really fascinating because the Jews have been stubborn-necked. They have been ungodly. They have been people who were responsible for killing Jesus the first time, along with the Romans. But when they finally come to the Lord on the last day of the tribulation, we know that all Israel will be saved. <laughs> they will have come to the end of themselves. And I think a lot about that concept, about coming to the end of themselves. Because if you're going to look at Israel and you're going to learn from them, maybe there's somebody here today that has never really ever come to the end of themselves. They're self-sufficient. I can go out, I can work, I can provide for my family, I can make things go on my own. I can, I, I, you know, life kicks me, I can stand back up, I'll kick, I'll kick back. Maybe you think to yourself, you really don't need religion. You don't really need the Bible. You don't need church people. You don't need people to come alongside you. Well, the reality of it is you're lying to yourself. And, 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 and the only reason you, if God wanted to, to take it all away from you in a moment, in a second, he could. And, 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 if, and if you want to play that game and you want to say, ha, no way, you're sitting here right now, just try it. And I would be terrified, just make sure I'm not sitting on the same plane with you. To make sure I'm not in the same car with you. Because you never know what's going to happen. There was a, I had this article one time, it was all these celebrities who basically scoffed at God. Like, I don't need God, I don't want God, I don't have anything to do with God. And, and, and within a short period of time, every one of those celebrities was dead. There was one of the greatest stories, and I, I'll try to find it this week, was a man who was a celebrity who said, I don't need God, I don't need God. And somebody were talking about um, his vehicle. And, and he had this, I think, a great sports car or something. And he made some comment in a derogatory way about God and, and, you know, and even like pointed to his trunk. Like as, and the reason I point this out is because I apologize for not having the story down, is the idea is that, is that within like a week after this man makes a derogatory comment about God and about, you know, God couldn't even protect me if I was in this car or if I hid in this trunk, his car, he, he dies in a horrific automobile accident and everything is mangled except the trunk of the car, the very comment that he was derogatory towards God about. And my point is, is for us to understand we live in a spiritual world that hates God, hence that's why they hate Israel. Our job is to remember to honor her. How do we honor? Witness to Jewish people. 
pray for Jewish people, correct people who are continually coming against Israel. You have to, in a day and age, we need to stand up for Israel. The whole concept in Matthew chapter, was it 25 or 25, where, you know, when somebody gives somebody a drink of water and or somebody, you know, visits somebody in, the, in prison or the hospital and Jesus gives the award for, hey, you know, why, you know, you know um, why is this person being rewarded? And they said, well, because when I was in the hospital, you gave me something to drink, you gave me something to, you came and visited me in the hospital, you gave me food, whatever. That's during the tribulation when the Jews are absolutely hated and the Gentiles are on the world are being called to honor the Jews, to help the Jews. And the people who put their necks on the line for the Jews are the ones that are gonna be honored. Again, Jewish people aren't perfect, but they are God's representatives. And so we have to always sometimes look past their, their, their negative actions. And the people who won't do this, I challenge you, are you really understanding what God is all about? Because you choose, God has told us, honor the Jews. Genesis chapter 12, you cannot get away from it. Those whom he honors, he will honor. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Woe to the man or woman who curses Israel. Woe to them. And if you don't change your attitude, woe to you. I would fear living life cursing Israel. So we need to honor them. We need to also remember this. Now turn to Ephesians 6. This is the passage I alluded to earlier. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. And if we think that Israel won this battle back in Esther, or we think that they've won any of their spiritual battles, like the battle in 2 Kings chapter 6, and I would encourage you to go back and read the entire context of how they win that battle, we're fooling ourselves. Listen, I think one of the greatest passages in the book of Daniel is when Daniel tries to pray for the nation of Israel and the answer can't come to him for three weeks because the angel that's dispatched by God has to have a fight through this war to get to him. It's one of the most craziest things in the world. You think, I pray to God, God sends an angel and he's got to take three weeks to get to me because there's a spiritual war going on? Yes, I can tell you as I've gotten older and as I've lived my Christian life more and more, this passage has become vital to every day. I can tell you that this passage has impacted my prayer life every day. Look at Ephesians chapter six. As the apostle Paul is coming to the end of this book, he says, finally, verse 10, chapter six, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. All right. Okay, be strong. We like that. You know, be a good guy. Put on the full armor of God. Armor is warfare apparel. Warfare apparel. Why? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is aggressive. He's got plans. He knows how to put people into your life to pull you in. He knows how to advertise to all of a sudden trip you up. He knows how to work around people so that maybe some jerk pushes you so that you know how to push back, so that he knows that you'll push back. If you think you live in a morally neutral world, again, you are foolish you are in a world in which Satan has schemes. There is a hierarchy of demons. Look at what he says. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. There is an incredible hierarchy. I don't know how it works. I don't know how the reporting function goes. We know that Satan is not omniscient. He is not everywhere, but we also know he does patrol the earth. We have to be always aware. My prayer life more and more is like, why would I have to say, and this is what we, when Grant was making that, why would I have to say, Lord, don't lead me in the temptation? Because there's an aspect of humility where you have to say, God, I can be led into temptation. And I'm coming to you and I'm begging you, please don't let me be pulled into this. And, and, and unless you're humble, if you're humble, you're going to pray it. If you're not humble, you're not going to be praying it. You're thinking every day I can put, pull myself up my own bootstraps. Every day I'm strong enough. I can go out in the world. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. 
you're foolish. If we watched an army man go out every day and all his fellow soldiers are with their helmets on, their body gear on, they're taking their guns out, and you watch this army guy, and I use this illustration it's almost foolishly, going out as if he's picking daisies in the middle of a war, you'd say, what an idiot. And I say to the person, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you now know what's going on. We are not in darkness like the world. We are in light. We know that we're not in a morally neutral world. Our neighbors, are, they see something on the news and it's anti-Israel and they jump on the bandwagon. They see something anti-God and they jump on the bandwagon. And I get it. Because Satan, as Ephesians 2 says, owns the power of the, uh, the air. He controls the media. He controls the world. He controls the politics. Listen, Psalm chapter 2, every nation in the world is going to turn on Israel. Every nation, including America, if America is around, they're going to all try to kill the Jews, wipe out every Jew. That's what the Battle of Armageddon is. You know, you watch these movies and they, you know, like with Bruce Willis and they have this Armageddon and it's like a meteor coming in and, oh, it's Armageddon or, you know, the... The ice age is coming, you know, 2012, and we're going to watch the earth crust explode. And that's, that, this is Armageddon. Armageddon is out and out hatred for God. And Armageddon is out and out hatred for the Jews. And Armageddon is we need to kill every Jew because we hate God. And we're all coming to Israel. We're all coming to Israel to gather to kill all of them. That's what Armageddon is. And Armageddon is God comes and says, nope. You're all dead, boom, just like that. Because people are so foolish that they don't realize that great sermon that is <coughs> by Jonathan Edwards about the fact of sinners in the hands of an angry God is that all humanity, and even you today, if you're not a believer, in that sermon, Jonathan Edwards pictures you as if you're a spider, and he's grabbed your web, and you're hanging and you're dangling by a web, and you're hanging over a flame and that's how God holds everybody and it's absolutely foolish to think that you are independent of God and if God goes like this you fall into the flame this is why fear of the God is beginning of the wisdom so you look at this and he says in verse 13 therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in, the, in what the evil day that's today every day is evil there is not a day you're waking up and it's going to be, this is a day of sunshine. This is a day, of day, a day in the sun, like that movie Ella, La La Land opens up. Another day in the sun, right? It, it's just, this is great. We're going to have a nice day. We're going to have a wonderful day. Every day, you've got to understand, is a day of warfare. Having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm is a, another military term that you don't lose your ground. Stand firm, therefore, having girded yourself with truth, meaning you put around a belt that you're going out to war, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, something that would protect your chest, you practice righteousness. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you're, you're bound in peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, which you will have to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the sword of God. And then with all of this, he adds prayer. Listen, physical battles are spiritual battles. There is nothing that happens even in families when husbands, wives get in war, fights. The idea, husband, fathers, children get in fights. Neighbors get in fights. We have to remember, we are in a spiritual battle. So use spiritual armor in physical battles. The idea is use these things so that you can fight with power. Israel fought. Israel defended themselves. I thank you for letting me go over it this morning. We live in a spiritual world, and we're going to get into the rest of the story as we come into in two weeks. But the story of Elisha in the Old Testament, don't look at that as just Old Testament. It's a reality. Throughout the Bible, we are reminded we live in a spiritual world. The promises that God will help us are there, avail yourselves. But our responsibility is what is before us, to do the things that God wants us to do. So, for such a time as this, Esther was raised up. She was behind the scenes. And the reason I brought in that Anna Ella Carroll 
is she was used behind the scenes. The rest of the story. Now we understand. This is how it all played out. The Jews in this time won. They won because God would never let them be eliminated. The first principle. Israel is secure. Remember that. Bless her. Second, fight those spiritual battles. And I hope that as we go into this, you have to understand, if you're visiting today and you don't understand, you cannot fight with God's spiritual tools unless you are a spiritual person. Ephesians talks about the fact that you're dead spiritually prior to becoming a Christian. The only way to get to heaven and have, or to get to heaven as well as to have these spiritual powers is that you come to faith in Jesus Christ. He becomes Lord of your life. You confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And when you do, you commit to him. And I use this illustration. I had the opportunity to speak at a funeral yesterday. But to belief is not mere agreement. Belief is when you be, you're, you're, you're committed to something. If today you thought your football team was going to win the Super Bowl, I think the 49ers are going to win. I think the Browns are going to win. Oh, that's the wrong year. <laughs> okay. See, I'm, I can be humorous. 49ers, Chiefs. Who do you think is going to win? Well, I think this team. Would you lay it on the line? Would you bet a million dollars? Would you bet $10,000? Would you even bet $1,000? See, when you really believe something, you're committed to it. And ask yourself, are you really committed to Jesus? Would you lay everything on the line for him? Because he knows. And that's, when that happens and you're born again, God puts his battery in you. He changes you. And now you are alive spiritually. Make sure you're alive spiritually. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the book of Esther, a book that has so much in it, has so much in it, simple truth about how you've got your hand on Israel, but it also has the reality, (coughs) excuse me, it also has the reality of so many spiritual truths of how we need to honor Israel, how we need to recognize the spiritual battles, and we're going to learn more of these in the coming days. Bless us as 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 a... people of God in 2024 that recognize we are in a spiritual battle. I pray for marriages. I pray for parents. I pray for businesses. I pray for our individual lives, God, today, that everyone here has gotten stronger because they've committed to put on the, battle, on the armor of God. Help us to fight the good fight, Lord. Amen.